We have reached episode five. Last week, we ended with Rosemary wanting to find the link between the corruption of Asir and Robinson with Mulligan. And this episode, we find out what she found out. So Stephen Davis is here to let us know that he did not like Mulligan and nor did any of the straight people on the force. He had a friend from West Roxbury who he called to let them know that he was doing this documentary and his friend's exact words were, he's in a place where he should have been a long time ago. Why they didn't like Mulligan well, he was making more than the mayor and the governor at the time. If you couldn't see the corruption and the way he dressed and oh, I couldn't stand the motherfucker. The day after Mulligan was murdered, the local media began to report on Mulligan's finances. How did a cop afford a Corvette and eight condos? When Elaine, Sean's godma, first met with Rosemary in 2007, they shared a theory that the three men, Sarah, Robinson, and Mulligan, were all corrupt together. Elaine had a lid theory, meaning that they put the lid on the case in order to close it as quickly as possible to avoid any detection of their activities that they wanted to keep quiet and hidden. By the time of his death, he had about six condos, which he had put in his sister's name. And Asara also owned condos in the same locations with him. So Rosemary and Jalise, who was also Sean's lawyer, decided to do a real estate check on Brazel, Robinson, Mulligan, and Asara to connect them that way as well. The reason that it was so important for us to connect Robinson, Sarah, and Mulligan is because when the first motion for new trial was was presented to the court, um, they presented it with evidence that Sarah and Robinson had been ripping off drug dealers. The judge refused to consider that their corruption had anything at all to do with the Mulligan case. I was just dumbstruck. These guys were liars and perjurers. And why would we believe any of the evidence that they touched? And they touched so much of that evidence in Sean's case, key evidence. McNeely is here. Yay. And we get our first connection between the men. They were all detectives out of E5 in West Roxbury. And he also wants to tell us that anti-corruption wouldn't tell him if they were investigating anyone. So when it came time to assemble this task force, he had no knowledge that they were being investigated, if he says so. So Thomas Nolan is a former sergeant detective in the anti-corruption unit, and he was at E5 in 91 and 92. And there had been word on the street as well as he would get information informally through police channels that made him aware that some night detectives needed to be looked at. And one of them was Mulligan. Mulligan, in his words, was a notorious rogue. 
We have a handle on what corruption is and engaging in um, inappropriate and potentially unlawful activities with drug dealers. Could we prove a lot of the stuff? We knew who the bad cops were. We knew where they lived, we knew where they worked. Um, could we put a case together against them? Most often not, but it wasn't for lack of trying. So the drug dealers in this case wouldn't cooperate with them, especially when they found out that the targets of the investigation were cops. Steven, from the beginning of the episode, is a former drug dealer. His father took him out of school in the sixth grade to start working the streets. To this day, he despises corruption, especially corrupt cops, because they're playing both sides, committing crimes while getting to get away with it and prosecuting others that commit crimes. Stephen would see Mulligan not only taking from drug dealers, but he also saw him picking up young black girls. Many of them were under the age of 18 and they were prostitutes. I know some people really don't like that word, but it's what they used. So I'm using that as well. These young girls were addicted to cocaine and knowing that Mulligan would take advantage he would take coke from a small time drug dealer and would give it to these girls in exchange for sex. Nolan and the anti-corruption unit decided to go the way of how the government got Al Capone. So they went with what they could prove. And that was the overtime scam. The Boston Police Department had an odd sort of management or lack thereof. And then you had the detectives, you know, 300 or so, and they had absolutely no supervision and they did whatever they wanted. And one of the things that they, you know, that they did, there, were, there was a core group of them, you know, who used to use what they called paid details and court overtime. Two different things, but quite lucrative. And there were cops in Boston and detectives who more than doubled their base salaries. In fact, Mulligan was cited in the article to have been the top earner, having made $126,395.22 one year. His overtime earnings were $66,394 with detail pay of $15,097 and a base salary of, are you ready? $44,903. He nearly tripled his salary in one year. Can I get that? I would love to triple my salary in one year. Not illegally, though, like how he was doing it. John Mulligan. Odd ways of doing things at times. He didn't always strictly adhere to the rules and regulations. And he used to get in trouble for double dipping. Like we get paid four hours for court, whether you were there 10 minutes or for four hours. I mean, he was always getting in trouble for doing that. I think I saw him in courtrooms more than I ever saw him on the street. Whenever I saw him, he was always in plain clothes. I, mean, I would see him in, sometimes in courts, he'd just come in, you know, like in flip-flops and stuff like that. He was just, he was always in court. With the flip-flop, sandals on, shorts, T-shirt, and of course the cops who were sitting there waiting to get their court cases called, 
are not happy with this. And he comes in and he's got, you know, a cardboard container with a half a dozen coffees for the sergeant. And there's a police officer working there and here's the coffee and they're happy to see him. And then 15 minutes later, he's walking out the door and it wouldn't be unusual for him then to go to another court and get another four hours for that. According to their investigation, he was listed as working 21 hours in a 24-hour time period. For the year of 1991, Nolan found that out of 247 days that the Suffolk County District Courts were in session, Mulligan submitted court attendance overtime slips for 231 of those days. During their investigation, they found that he submitted slips for more dates than the court had actually been in session. And some of those courts didn't even exist. Their investigation wrapped up in 1992 and they reported to their supervisors that they wanted to take it to the DA's office, indict and move for an arrest of Mulligan. However, the case was taken away from them and it was given to internal affairs, shifting the case from criminal to administrative. If it had stayed with them, there would have been a criminal prosecution and it would have been in the media, which they couldn't have negative media exposure for the department. So they buried it. Rosemary submitted her first FOIA request for IE documents about the four detectives. The purpose of FOIA is supposed to be a freedom of information request so that theoretically anyone, you or me or anybody, should be able to get access to any public document at any time based on a simple request. But in reality, that's not the way it works. So in reality, there are all these, you know, sort of pitfalls that happen when you do FOIA requests. So you have to be specific. You have to have the permission of the person that you're looking for information about. If they're dead, you have to provide information that they are dead. But they'll fight you on every little thing. And so when you file your request asking for information, we filed them with the district attorney's office, with the police department, with the state crime lab, with anybody who had their hand in on the investigation into Mulligan. We wanted to know what they had, when they had it, and, and how many documents it was. Based on how the system is set up, it's easy to let dates slip up and believe that nothing is there because of how long it takes just to get the documents. Over the years, Rosemary has come to learn that the harder they fight you on the request, the more there is to hide in those documents, especially considering the documents she needed were in the possession of the department itself. And they were never going to give those documents up without a fight. October 2004, Rosemary took Sean's case and she sent a request to the Boston Police Department for all records and internal affairs files for the four detectives. She received no response after several months, so she appeals to the supervisor of public records. Six months later, the Boston Police Department requests $3,500 to produce the documents and she cuts a check five days later. She also sends requests for records to the BPD Crime Lab Unit, the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office, the DEA, and the FBI. 17 months later, 
She received incomplete internal affairs files from the Boston PD. This is a little over two years later, depending on how many months she waited to appeal at this point. And they haven't turned over everything. So she requests the missing files. And a year later, she gets told those files are anti-corruption files and aren't authorized for release. She appeals to the supervisor of public records again, and her appeal is denied. Years. It takes years. Let me tell you what happens. Internal Affairs never investigated it. Instead, it was investigated by anti-corruption. And then we started looking for the anti-corruption files, and we were told by the Boston Police Department, which is the most ironic thing, is that even though Internal Affairs records are public, Uh, when they break a a police rule, the anti-corruption records are not, and you needed a court order in order to get them. So it's 2012, and she files a civil lawsuit against the Boston PD to get the files. It's been eight years since she took the case at this point, and now Shauna's been incarcerated for 19 years while they play games. Can you imagine how many people are sitting in jail now based on the fact that they wouldn't give them the information that they wanted? It's it's enraging. It's enraging that uh, their lives barely changed and, and they turned other lives upside down. It's enraging. So Rosemary starts to receive FBI files. These files include investigations that were pending on Mulligan prior to his death for extortion and shaking down prostitutes, just to name a few. It went back further and much deeper than she thought when she originally took on the case. After reading everything, she filed an additional request for all documents from the federal corruption investigation into a Sarah Robinson and Brazel. Elaine started helping them organize all the files, and her primary goal was linking Mulligan with the men. Everything she read troubled her, but she wasn't able to find his name specifically. She would find descriptions that fit him, but nothing that actually names him by name. So she started all over and reread it all again because she knew it had to be in there. That's when she came upon the Robert Martin case. And there he was. Robert Martin was a marijuana dealer who testified in front of the grand jury about being ripped off. His story was incredibly similar to what they did with Jose De La Rosa in the previous episode. They took his keys and searched his apartment for drugs and money. Mulligan guarded him in the car while Sarah and Robinson went in the apartment. DeWire is here to whitewash it, as he has done all documentary. And he says that the guys could have said, hey, let's do a bus. He asks if they have a warrant, sees that they do, and then goes along with it. Does he know what they're intending to do? He can't say. Now, this is interesting, considering the whole prosecution's case was made on that even if Sean didn't know what Terry had planned, he was guilty anyway. But with Mulligan, he's suddenly completely innocent if he doesn't know what these guys are doing. Give me a break. 
while he wasn't with him 24 7 he doesn't believe that mulligan was corrupt and he definitely doesn't believe the nonsense about him shaking people down mind you he already knew of him stealing public funds and padding his timesheet with false overtime but he's not corrupt this ladies and gentlemen is why i don't like dwyer nor mcneely now you just wait to hear something from mcneely that will make you want to throw something in another episode you might even this episode but definitely next episode but in the meantime he's gonna tell us that robinson and mulligan didn't even like each other Sarah and Mulligan had a strange relationship. No explanation as to what strange meant, but whatever. I kind of wish she would have told Robinson that because we get a video after Mulligan's death from Robinson himself that doesn't match that characterization at all. Detective Walter Robinson mourns for his friend John Mulligan. He was a general, generous man. He was, he was, he was very compassionate toward people. I never saw him abuse anybody. I never saw him treat anyone harshly. And I've been with him when he's made arrests, and I've seen him bring people in under arrest. I mean, if I didn't like someone, you're not going to be able to interview me for your program, and I damn sure am not going to use terms like generous to describe them. But maybe that's just me. The Robert Martin robbery by Robinson, Sarah Mulligan, and other E5 detectives, that took place on September 9th, 1993, 17 days before Mulligan was murdered. In 2013, Rosemary is ready to file a motion for a new trial based on the evidence in the newly discovered documents. Judge Ball grants the evidentiary hearing in 2014. Finally, someone who is actually interested in the truth, unlike McDaniel's behind. It's my podcast, so I know I can cuss, but you know what? I'm just going to keep it cute this episode. Maybe. You know, everybody in the can is looking for a new trial. Everybody. Some lawyers, you know, there's got to be some credible stuff there. Some people don't care if it's credible or not. They're just going to take a shot. And, you know, in his particular case, that's what they did. Rosemary Scapicchio puts the motion in for a new trial. If she can demonstrate that he did 20 or 25 years for a crime he didn't commit, that's a big payday. So... I said I was going to keep it cute, but you feel free to have your own feelings about what McNeely just said there. We're going to tear into McNeely, though, but just not this episode, because he says something even more egregious next episode. So for now, I'm going to let him bypass on that comment this episode anyway. The evidentiary hearing is scheduled for three sessions between the months of August to December in 2014. The connection, I think, is overwhelming between Mulligan, Sarah Robinson, and Brazel in this case. 
Had we known at the time that Sarah and Robinson and Brazel and Mulligan were all involved in ripping off drug dealers uh, and, and, and instituting phony search warrants and robbing people, how could that not have made a difference uh, in terms of whether or not that information got suppressed? How could it not have? And certainly if it, wasn't, if it didn't make a difference then, it absolutely would have made a difference in front of the jury. That's the reason, Judge, in a nutshell, that we need a new trial. Because you cannot trust the investigation that was done by members of this best and brightest um, team that had their own ulterior motives for doing what they did. And most of what they did was to make sure that no shadow was cast upon them and their illegal activities were kept secret. And I would suggest that that alone is enough to grant a new trial in this case to John Ellison. In November 2014, Rosemary calls Sean's original attorneys to testify. First up is Norman Zelkin, and she presents him with the Robert Martin files. He thought he had all the files when he went to the first trial in 1998, and now he's realizing that he didn't have everything. He just had Globe articles that mentioned something, but he didn't have the full material. If he had them during his examination of Robinson in the trials, he doesn't believe that they would be here today. Next up is Phyllis Broker, who testifies remotely. Now, she was the lead prosecutor, and frighteningly enough, she's now a judge. Have mercy. Well, she testifies that she firmly remembers asking for Asera to be off the case because she didn't have any use for him. She felt he was incompetent and didn't want anyone incompetent around her case. She didn't feel he was incompetent in this case, though, just that he was in previous cases. How? How is she a judge right now? I, I can't. I, I just can't. She doesn't remember asking Robinson and Asera to give statements under oath, but concedes to it if that's what's in the files. Asera and Robinson weren't taken off the case, but the union, especially the president of the Benevolent Society, Tommy Montgomery, were calling for her head and for her to be removed. Broker feels like the relationship was strained due to the timing of everything. An officer had been killed and her boss was up for election, which caused strain between the DA's office and the department. During this hearing in November, the DA's office discloses documents that Sean's team has sought for years. The DA's office gives a document to Duncan, who testifies that he's never seen that document, prompting Rosemary to ask for it. They just handed me documents I've never seen before. Apparently, Mr. Lynn ran over and got them this morning and didn't think it was important. They handed it to me before I directly examined Mr. Duncan. So could I there's Mr. Lynn? Dude, what happened is that this, we did not anticipate this, this uh, document would be relevant until we heard the testimony this morning. So I'm at a tremendous loss, Mr. Lynn, to understand how this stuff was just turned over this morning in the middle of the hearing. My, my brief reading of the documents, and there were several hundred pages, 
um, that I looked through. But this is, these are documents that were generated by the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office. Mm -hmm. Tape recorded statements. Um, in, in connection with this case? In connection with the, the search warrants in West Roxbury, uh, I believe for Sarah and Robinson, that I've never seen before. When? Uh, this was on February 23rd, 1994. I've never seen it before. And that you just got just now a few minutes ago? Right. Ten minutes ago. Yeah. I can't believe now we're having to take a break and get nothing done before lunch while material is just getting turned over to it. So how do we solve this problem? I, I, I... Because it's not helping the cops' credibility, i got to tell you, Mr. Lynn. In my defense, I just I want to say that we had some trouble with the uh, with the uh, the scanning machine, so I sent them in two batches. The scanning machine is the new. It was the new intern. In the middle of the hearing, she got over five hundred internal documents. All those years, this piecemeal discovery is just. You know, they don't understand. I don't think they comprehend that someone's life is on the line here. Every day that, that someone stays locked up in a prison cell for a crime he didn't commit is a day that you shouldn't be able to sleep as a prosecutor if there's even this much possibility that that could be true. Amongst the new documents is the anti-corruption report on Mulligan. In it is a report from November 1993 where an informant comes forward and alleges that detectives Mulligan and Robinson robbed two drug dealers at gunpoint in 1991. Before Sean's first trial, the commissioner Bratton received a report that both Robinson and Mulligan had ripped off two drug dealers in Brighton. The anti-corruption investigator interviewed a witness who was a business owner who gave them the information. After the interview, they had to gauge if the person was credible, and they said yes. Then, the investigation went nowhere. There is not another piece of paper in the file about this information. Before Sean's first trial, they knew there was a problem with Robinson and Mulligan, and they sat on it and covered it up. In fact, Robinson is still assigned to the task force and has his hands on pretty much all the evidence against Sean. Um, so, so clearly, the Boston Police Department knew he was involved. And, and, and so when there is an anti-corruption uh, investigation going on, it gets handled at the highest level. You're dealing at the top echelon commissioner, uh, you know, all of those like higher ups. Um, they have access to all of this anti-corruption stuff. They had to have known uh, that these drug ripoffs were happening because they were being investigated by anti-crime. And then you hide that for, for, from a man who's serving a sentence for a crime he didn't commit for 22 years? How do you sleep at night? How do you look yourself in the mirror and say, hey, I'm good? Like, I, I just can't. I can't even imagine that. So Rosemary gives Zalkin the file about the incident that happened 18 months prior to the murder that was in that report. And he testified that he had no idea. 
He says that it would have been the most dynamite material of all, especially considering Rosa Sanchez and her relationship with the Sarah. It would have been incredible if he had it. Prior to the evidentiary hearing, Rosemary discovered some evidence of an allegation that Mulligan had been killed by a fellow officer. During the proceedings, the DA's office released the report for the first time. She had been doing a request for a completely different case and was looking into a detective named Foley. George Foley had actually been on the Mulligan task force and a few days after the murder, he came forward and said that he had received a tip from a corrections officer named Ray Armstead Jr. that his father, Ray Armstead Sr., a fellow Boston police detective, had killed Mulligan. Detective Armstead had a young daughter around 13, 14 at the time that Mulligan had been screwing around with and wouldn't leave her alone. Now, this kind of went along with the rumors and everything that they had been hearing about Mulligan and his propensity for young girls. So Ray Jr., according to the report, says that he will talk to Mulligan and see what he can do. And his father tells him it's too late. He will read about it in the paper that Mulligan is going to be found shot between the eyes at the Walgreens. He had done some recon in the past and knows that he sleeps there and they've shaken the car before and he doesn't wake up. His father told him this a month before the murder actually occurred. And that's exactly how Mulligan would be found. They didn't do a follow-up to the Foley report. Former detective Daniel Keeler gets called to the stand. He was the one who did the initial interview with Foley about the investigation. He was part of the task force, and because he was assigned to homicide at the time, he was placed on the task force and not invited. He responded that night to the hospital after the murder as well. Keeler at one time had been known as Mr. Homicide as he was very effective and did good work. However, he was found to have fudged evidence in some cases. He is no longer called Mr. Homicide because he lied on a case that Rosemary had him on and they caught him in that lie. He firmly remembers that and still holds a grudge against Rosemary. In fact, he gets very spicy on the stand. He remembers fully saying Armstead Jr. said that his father had a beef with Mulligan over his sister and that Armstead Sr. said he was going to kill him. They have an exchange where Rosemary has to check him because when asked if Mulligan had a shot between the eyes, Keeler decides to say he had multiple wounds inflicted upon him by her client. Well, she reminds him that he wasn't there, so he can't make such a statement. And when he tries to double down on this and says that the evidence shows that he did it, she reminds him that he wasn't present at the murder itself and can't prove a damn thing he is saying on the stand. 
Were you there that night, Detective Keeler? I was there. I examined Detective Were you there when the shots were fired? No, but... So you have no idea who fired those shots, do you? Oh, I have I have a very good idea of who fired You weren't those shots. there, Detective, no, were you? No, ma'am. Okay, ma so you have no idea I what can't. happened because you weren't there. Ma'am. You only know it was reported to you after the fact. She is not one of your little friends. Don't mess with Rosemary, okay? Now, Rosemary laid the smack down and I was here for it all. Do you hear me? When asked if it was fair to say that he confronted Foley and said that he was lying and Foley insisted that he was telling the truth, he says yes. When asked if it's fair to say that he didn't follow up on that, he tries to say that it's not fair and he viewed Foley as unstable and relieved him of his weapon that night. He said Foley had a mental breakdown, which Rosemary challenges, is he a doctor? And if he can make such a statement, he couldn't answer. So the judge does that little, hey, 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 come on, you two, which Keeler thanks the judge for saving his behind from the fire. Rosemary knows that they did it to save their ass because a cop can't kill another cop. She asked him if he was aware that at least one person other than Foley had also mentioned Armstead, and he said no. In addition, was he aware of a tip that also used the name Armstead made on that night that stated that Armstead had a contract out on Mulligan, and he said no. So he was involved on this 50-man task force but had no idea that there were two other places other than Foley himself that also mentioned Armstead as the killer. Hmm. But McNeely, I thought this case was so clean. About as clean as finding a needle in a gigantic haystack, I guess. Armstead Sr. denies any involvement in the murder of course he does, because he's not going to say he did it. They rest their case, and now it's up to Judge Ball to make her decision. That wraps up episode five. We have three more episodes left. I just want to thank you all so much for hanging on to the end of this episode i got a root canal the other day and i still feel like i'm talking really weird so i just appreciate you hanging in there with me next episode mcneely makes his egregious statement judge ball makes her decision which is audio we heard in the first episode so we know he gets his request for a new trial Sean gets his first taste of freedom in 22 years, and we find out some of the lengths Sarah and Robinson went to to cover up their activities with Mulligan. It's going to be a good one, so can't wait for you to hear it. Thanks so much for listening. Feel free to follow me on social media at Girl Meets True Crime on Instagram and Girl Meets TC on Twitter. See you in the next one. Bye.